Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Prime Minister says he made it very clear that CSIS must share more information after China targeted MP Michael Chong. Do we believe the Prime Minister when he says he didn't know anything about it? We'll discuss that with Warren Kinsella. Could the public service remote working deal actually impact private sector negotiations? And who made it into the 2023 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, music commentator and publisher Eric Alper will talk about that with us. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The ongoing story in Ottawa these days, besides settling strikes, uh, is uh, the, the revelation that apparently a Canadian security service had actually uncovered uh, some information, some rather troubling information, that that a, a member of parliament and his family uh, were under threat from, well, they say, foreign in, interests, and Chinese interests, quite specifically. We're talking, of course, about Michael Chong. And uh, he says that, uh, well, it's just all after the fact because he didn't even know about this. Apparently nobody told him, nobody in the government told him, nobody in the security services told him. That's their story anyway. But uh, Mr. Chong says that uh, it's a rather troubling revelation. This shows an appalling breakdown in leadership on part of the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister and the Prime Minister alone is responsible for the machinery of government. And for the Prime Minister not to know about this, not to be interested in this, I think indicates, uh, calls into question uh, the PMO's handle on the machinery of government. Uh, understandably upset, as you might expect. And, and this has been volleyed back and forth during question period over the last couple of days. Uh, Warren Kinsella writes about this in the Toronto Sun today, too. Uh, the piece uh, says Michael Chong's scandal bigger than the others Trudeau has faced. And uh, Warren joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, this is just one after another, Warren, of, of these indications about this, this huge disconnect here between our security and, and intelligence services and the government. What's going on here? Well, I guess it, it requires us all to believe, um, as the Prime Minister claimed yesterday, it requires us to believe that the National Intelligence Gathering Service gathered intelligence and then didn't tell the Prime Minister. And, I, I, you know, honestly, Bill, I just don't think anybody believes that. You know, CSIS is part of the government. They are answerable to Parliament. They're answerable to their minister and to the prime minister and the prime minister's own chief of staff gave evidence before a parliamentary committee just a few days ago saying yes she receives briefings from CSIS and from intelligence agencies he now expects us to believe well actually in the case of this conservative member of parliament and his family who are facing threats and intimidation and harassment by china he didn't know about that and, like, you can't have it both ways here. Either you do know or you don't. And uh, I believe he does know, and he's not telling the truth about what he knows. And and this is where the, I think people are getting confused about this, because I, I remember Katie Telford's testimony to the committee uh, looking into foreign interference just a couple of weeks ago and said not only does she get all these briefings from CSIS, but he reads them all. He's, the prime minister reads them all. He, because remember, at that time there were accusations, oh, he's not even paying attention to what's going on. He doesn't even read the briefings. And she says, oh, yes, he does. He reads everything. Well, how did this slip through everybody's fingers then, if, if in fact it did slip through? Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm trying to think of uh, um, an excuse he could have possibly used. Maybe the report was written last Friday, and maybe he only learned about it when he saw it in the media on Monday. But that's not the case. The report about the Chinese regime's campaign 
to harass and threaten and intimidate the Chong family, both in Canada, back in Hong Kong. That was written, Bill, in July of 2021. Like, it's two years old, this report. Does he actually expect us to believe in all of that time, nobody from CSIS picked up the phone and spoke to someone in his office or him or his minister of global affairs or his solicitor general or his public safety minister? Like, they were sitting on a report saying that a member of parliament and a Canadian citizen, a group of Canadian citizens who deserve protection from their government, do they actually expect us to believe nobody let them know about it? Like, nobody believes it. And this has been the problem consistently with Trudeau and his circle throughout this Chinese, inter- Chinese interference scandal. You know, he will make a denial, and then it'll turn out not to be true. And it's a pattern of behavior that goes back to SNC-Lavalin, which he called a you know, false allegation, and the Aga Khan, and so on and so forth. And, it, you know... I, I just don't think anybody believes him anymore. Well, the other common thread through all of this too, Warren, as you wrote in, in your piece, uh, is is the the almost cavalier attitude that that this you know prime minister and and his his cabinet, quite frankly, take towards uh, the threat of Chinese interference. He just every time a report has come out, there've been a number of them now that have been leaked from CSIS. Uh, he doesn't seem to pay much attention to it. Just oh, this is no big deal. What you do about nothing? Yeah, and that so that raises the question: Why? Why would he take that position? Why would he say that China is not a threat? Well, then that's why her eyes have turned to the Trudeau Foundation, which is named after his father. And one of the people who runs it is his brother, Sasha Trudeau, who testified before Parliament yesterday. And, you know, Sasha Trudeau, his brother said, well, we've got nothing to worry about with Chinese interference. And then admitted under questioning by members of Parliament that he himself, Sasha Trudeau, the Prime Minister's brother, was personally and intimately involved in receiving a $200,000 pledge from a Chinese front company. So, you know, China does have an interest in influencing the perspectives and the views and the decisions of Justin Trudeau, you know, whether it's through his brother or through the Trudeau, Trudeau Foundation or God knows what else. They are interested in influencing his decision making. And it looks like they have. Like, it looks like they've been successful, whether it's, you know, petitioning to get a certain candidate um, made into a liberal candidate in the election in 2019 and 2021 or money to the Trudeau Foundation or whatever. China, as successive you know, federal governments have been warned for years, China has Canada in its sights and has been focused on influencing our democracy. And Trudeau, I think more than any prime minister we've had during all that time, is just completely disinterested in the threat that it poses. And, you know, if we go back not too far in history, too, I mean, you know, we, we were the last of the G7 nations to actually uh, tell Huawei, go away. We're not going to you're not going to be you know, our, our, our server, uh, you know, when it comes to, to all the, the new technologies that are going on, the 5G, et cetera. Uh, and, and much to the chagrin of, of course, of our other five ice partners, because who had all said this and immediately we, we seem to drag our heels on this. But Warren, even if. You know, give these guys the benefit of the doubt and say maybe maybe they didn't think there was any any serious threat here. Even if they did think that and have thought that in the past, has there not been a body of evidence presented over the last few months, especially, to indicate that, that maybe there is and maybe they should change their attitude? Well, the, everybody should go and ask the two Michaels. Pick up the phone and ask them: Is the Chinese regime a threat to Canadians and Canadian interests? 
And I think we all know what their answer would be. They would say, yes, they illegally and illicitly imprisoned two Canadian citizens who had done nothing wrong because the Trudeau government finally acted against Huawei and its spying activity and one of its executives. But like, Bill, you know, forget about all of that. Like, so Trudeau, okay, he's claiming that he didn't know. Well, he himself created a committee back in 2017 called the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. And it has representation from all the major political parties. And you don't hear a lot about it because it does fine work and it works in quiet and it looks at secret security documents and interviews senior security officials. That's its job that, you know, they could have ensured that the Chong situation was brought to the attention of that committee. But that didn't happen. Like the possibility here is either Trudeau is not telling us the truth about what he knew and when he knew it, or his government is completely incompetent and has got a rogue intelligence agency that has basically cut him out of the loop. Either way, that's a bad situation. That's bad for a democracy. And it's why I think, as you pointed out a minute ago, some of our allies uh, you know, around the world, the Brits and the Australians and the Americans, are cutting us out of important decision-making about national security and national defense. Well, and as a comparator, I mean, look at the story from last week where, you know, the, the situation in New York, uh, where they found some of these Chinese police stations, quote-unquote, uh, that were operating there, uh, and they acted swiftly on this. I mean, you know, the, the diplomats were asked to leave the country. Uh, the ones that weren't diplomats that were involved in this were, were, char- were charged. Uh, and yet we just seem to, you know, whistle past all of this stuff and say, you know, nothing going on here. And my colleague, Brian Lilly of Post Media, wrote about that very issue this morning. Yeah. The individual, the diplomat who oversaw and led the campaign against the Chong family, not just this conservative member of parliament, member of the opposition, like citizens, like who don't deserve any of this, members of his family. It was led by a, a Chinese diplomat who's still operating under the Chinese consulate in Toronto. Like as Pierre Polyev and many others have said, why is that individual still not here? Is still here? Why have they not been declared persona non grata and told to leave Canada? That person is still here. And again, you know, that's a failure of the Trudeau government's obligation, its duty to protect Canadian citizens. And, and I know when that first started and it came to, to light, and, and you and, and Brian and others wrote about this, uh, the the immediate reaction from the government seemed to be, look, at, we, we don't want to paint all, all Chinese Canadians with the same brush. Well, that was never the intention, and nobody ever said that. They're talking about, uh, you know, nefarious actions by people representing the Communist Party of China. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it, when they respond like that, it's they that are trying to group everybody at the same place. That's not, that is unfair. It's Chinese Canadians who are the target of this activity more than anybody else. It's Chinese Canadians who are being actually surveyed by these secret or uh, behind-the-scenes police uh, bureaus that are being set up from Vancouver to, to Montreal. There's secret police bureaus being set up by the Chinese government to follow around and and conduct intelligence, and in some cases intimidation, on Chinese-Canadian citizens. Chinese-Canadians are the victims more than anybody else of this activity. And, you know, Trudeau's betrayal to to Canadians, I believe in this case, is more than anybody else a a betrayal of those people. Well, and uh, we just 
played the clip from Mr. Chong, of course, Bishop, before you jumped on with us here too, and uh, he's he's obviously upset. I mean, there was an indication from some of the MPs yesterday that no, it's, it's you know he's a he's a good guy, and you know this is an oversight, and it's never never going to happen again. I, if if my family was threatened and I found out about it after the fact, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to drop that right away. I don't think he will either. Uh, Warren, I know how busy it is for you today. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Take care. Warren Kinsella, former special assistant to Jean Chrétien and uh, war room director for Dalton McGiddy. Uh, the three elections that uh, Mr. McGiddy won as uh, premier of this province. Uh, it was Warren who was, uh, again, a senior advisor to that as well. So he knows the insides of politics, uh, which I guess is why he's so frustrated about what he sees and hears about what's happening over the last couple of months. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back to work. I mean, we had two public sector unions uh, on strike at the same time, and uh, it was crippling an awful lot of the, the agencies that we rely on on a daily basis. And now it looks as if uh, the public sector union representing the Canada Revenue Agency employees have struck a tentative deal with the federal government. Laurie Paris has some details. In a statement, PSAC says the tentative deal includes wage increases totaling 12.6% compounded over the life of the agreement from 2021 through 2024, as well as an additional fourth year in the agreement that protects workers from inflation. The tentative agreement also includes a pensionable $2,500 one-time lump sum payment that represents an additional 3.6% of salary for the average member. The announcement of a prospective agreement comes after the government and PSAC came to separate deals that ended a strike of more than 120,000 other public servants. Those separate agreements included an 11.5% wage increase over four years. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. So let's talk about the precedence that, that could be set here and, and had just how much of an impact this is going to have on, on labor negotiations, uh, both public sector and private sector going forward. Uh, to do that, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Barry Eidlin, uh, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at McGill University. Uh, professor, thank you so much. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Glad to be here. There's, there's a couple of elements to this, though, and I wanted to get your perspective on, if we could. First of all, let's talk about the, the lump sum payments as, as part of the settlement. And this is on, not unlike what PSAC had earlier this week. Uh, highly unusual in, 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 pro, in pro, private sector. Uh, this is like a signing bonus, I guess, if you're a hockey player, you know, when you get your new contract. Uh, but you don't often hear that in labor negotiations, do you? Actually, it is, um, unfortunately, I would say a fairly common occurrence. Um, it is often a way of sort of uh, sweetening the deal, uh, or ma making the poison go down easier somewhat. When, there's a, <laughs> when there is a sub substandard agreement, uh, they, they will often sort of put this money up front. But the, uh, the as you call it, a signing bonus uh, doesn't, compound over time the way a real wage increase does. So it's often uh, viewed as a step back in terms of uh, of the wage package. But it's got to be attractive, I would think, to some at least some people in the membership anyway. Right, here's a check. Well, absolutely. That's, that's why people do it, because the, yeah. the money's up front. And so you're looking at sort of, okay, I get you know $3,000 or what have you um, in my bank account now. Uh, but uh, but the the long term uh, effects are are less positive. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, look at what we just went through the last fourteen months. I mean, if inflation goes back up around seven or eight percent, you know that that lump sum payment, which is probably long gone, isn't going to do you much good, is it? Exactly. So, but anyway, it's 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 alluring. So I guess that's one of the things that that, that they throw in there on a regular basis. And and of course, there can be back pay in situations like this. But uh, you know, well, we there don't is. Know I mean, now. that's yeah. The, the, this agreement is retroactive to twenty twenty one. So this the, it's important to recognize here that this has been two years of negotiations leading up to this 
almost two week strike. And largely that is the result of uh, government uh, foot dragging, essentially, because the union, you know, union members have no interest in going two years without pay increases and not having their workplace issues addressed. What about the attitude of the government and the negotiators, the guys on the other side of the table during situations mm-hmm. like this? Uh, during COVID, they, they, they were preaching austerity, at least when it came to this kind of government spending anyway. And, and I think there was pretty much a buy-in from a lot of the unions, like, okay, yeah, they, this is pretty rough stuff we're going through right now. But I got the sense anyway, Professor, from not just these two unions, but some other public sector unions, including teachers and, and, and some nursing union representatives I've talked to, that they're going to say, okay, it's time to catch up now. Uh, and, you know, we, we played ball with you guys for three years during the, mm-hmm. ca- the pandemic. Uh, now, we, you know, let's, let's talk about how we're going to make up the money. They, they, they don't want to lose anything in that process, do they? Absolutely. No, this is really sort of trying to, uh, it's the time to put your money where your mouth is, right? There was, you know, two, three years of saying, you know, these are essential workers, these are heroes, these are sort of doing the work to sort of, you know, keep the government functioning in a time of need. And now it's time to pay up essentially. And, uh, and it was uh, pretty uh, startling the degree to which or maybe not so startling, the degree to which the uh, the federal government really drove a hard bargain here. It is surprising in the sense that the Trudeau government has really tried in its time in office to cultivate a more pro-labor image compared to perhaps its previous liberal predecessor governments. And this really throws a wrench in that image building process. Well, you know, we related to that story, and I'm, I'm sure you recall it, uh, Professor, that, you know, when the Gretchen government was in power, of course, and Paul Martin was the the finance minister at the time, we were in a pretty dire financial circumstance. I think the UN called us almost a third world nation because of our, our financial circumstance. Uh, and uh, Minister Martin got the ship righted again, but uh, the public union, that they, they were the target of an awful lot of this. And I guess, you know, the, they have long memories too, and they remember exactly the way things were. And they, I don't think they ever want to see returning to that atmosphere again. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize here that this, this austerity uh, is selectively applied. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's telling that we're seeing these calls for austerity and wage restraint for public sector workers at the same time that we're seeing billions doled out for corporate subsidies, for private uh, consulting firms, and so on. Um, So it really drives home the point that austerity as a policy is a policy choice. It's It's not something that's driven by the numbers. And we saw that during the pandemic as well, right? When 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 we really needed government to step up for uh you know to 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 keep the keep the society functioning um there was money there uh you know to 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 fund priorities when when needed and so we can really see that that again austerity is a policy choice and they chose to implement it on the backs of these federal workers it seems well, more recently, I guess we saw it with the announcement about the, the federal government that was going to go into the Volkswagen plant. Uh, exactly. Because you know, that's just around the time that CPAC went on strike, and, and they were saying, you got that kind of money. <laughs> you know, Don't tell us that you're, you're broke. Let's let's be realistic about this. And I know the government answer to that is always, yeah, but that's that's this pile of money. Uh, the, we're dealing with this pile of money when it comes to your – and, of course, I think the union simply said, it's all money. It's all your money, and, and we want a piece of that. And, uh, you know, when they start throwing around numbers like that, I mean, they're kind of leaving themselves open for that kind of criticism, aren't they? 
Exactly. No, that's the thing. It, 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 it's, it's, I mean, because the piles of money are policy choices, right? Yeah. The government's deciding in their budget, right? We're going to allot this much for this thing and this much for this thing. They are choosing to do that. And then sort of turn around and say, well, we can't do it because we chose to put this pile over here and not over here is, uh, is a bit disingenuous. Professor, let's talk about something else that uh, has been front and center with both the, these union negotiations. And I'm wondering how much of an impact it's going to have going forward with other negotiations. And that, of course, is remote work. Uh, you know, it, it's been a debatable issue for a number of years now. Uh, we got, in many ways, forced into it because of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Uh, and the, the uh, indications seem to be, well, even when we come out of it, I, you know, we may be looking at hybrid models here. Maybe maybe half the week at the office or the plant or whatever it is. Uh, you know, where where possible, of course. Uh, it was it was a sticking point in both these negotiations. Is, is it going to be something that's going to be on the table going forward now with, with other labor negotiations? Absolutely. This is really a broader issue about control over working conditions, right? If you are a worker in Canada, you spend most of your waking hours in a workplace. And so it stands to reason that you would want some say over the conditions you face on a day-to-day -day basis in that workplace. For much of the federal workforce, obviously we have to remember there's a diverse federal workforce, some of whom are not uh, remote workers. That does not work for them if you're working on a ship mm -hmm. or something like that. But a large chunk of them, this remote work question is an important workplace condition issue. And given the diversity of the federal workforce, there's no one size fits all solution to this. And so what the union was asking for was some say in how this remote work policy is developed rather than having a, the employer sort of decree by unilateral decision-making how this is going to happen. And it makes sense because, you know, as I said, there's no one size fits all. And you need to have input from the people who are actually doing the work, namely the workers themselves. Now, what we see in this tentative agreement is a, a, a step forward on that in that there, the the uh, the Treasury Board decided that there was going to be at least a case-by-case -case basis and there was going to be certain um, employee management uh, um, committees set up to discuss this stuff. But it's not put in the collective bargaining agreement. So this has a way of expanding, right? So these side letters are fairly common in collective bargaining and they often get incorporated into the contract over time. So it's possible that's going to happen. But more importantly, I think, to your point, is that this does set a precedent that management does not necessarily have the right to just unilaterally decide how these things happen. There has to be some process of deliberation and negotiation when deciding what happens with this really key workplace condition issue. Well, especially because, you know, we've tried it. It's, we're not talking the hypothetical now, are we? Uh, you know, some companies, including the public sector services, have experienced it. And and the knock against it always was, well, you're going to be less productive. You're going to be sitting around watching Let's Make a Deal and, and you know, doing everything else except working. And we found that, 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 you know, by and large, that was not the case at all. As a matter of fact, in some companies, we heard that productivity increased. So there's an argument to be made for that. But I guess on the other side, and you talked about these negotiations, uh, some companies, including the federal government, which is, you know, a corporation, 
uh, are going to say, look, you know, we've got all this office space here. This, this is going to kill us if you guys work from there. We're, we're going to have empty buildings. And, uh, you know, they're worried about that sort of thing, too. So there's, there's give and take on both sides here, isn't there? Well, that's that's the essence of what negotiation is about, right? Yeah. Give and take, right? So there are multiple competing issues, and there's no clear-cut solution to how you deal with this. And the solution is you negotiate it rather than the employer just unilaterally saying, we're going to do it this way and just imposing something that doesn't necessarily work for everyone involved. So is this going to spill over into, into private sector negotiations as well? I would think so. You know, the labor force, I mean, you know, I mean, we, we think about public and private as these sort of, separate groups of people, but there's a lot of bleed over, you know, people, the people in their careers move between the two. These are employers in a labor market, just like any other employer. Uh, and this was a, one of the largest strikes in Canadian history where these issues were put front and center. A lot of people were watching. It stands to reason that what happens as a result of this strike is going to have spillover effects in other parts of the economy. Is uh, is business ready for that? I'm, I know you know we got forced into remote working because of the pandemic, and I think a lot of policies were probably written on the back of an envelope someplace. Like, okay, let's try this. Uh, but but now that it looks like it's it's going to be at least one part of the future, uh, are are there discussions going on? Do you think, Professor? Well, okay, this is this is the policy going forward. Well, again, you need to think about this as part of a larger set of issues governing of working conditions, right? So labor negotiations are, we often think about the economic package, the wage and benefit, but a big chunk of what labor negotiations are about is governing the conditions in the workplace. And so this is a relatively new addition to that, but it's the same, it's the same set of issues, right? And it's just a new, it's a new version. And so this is going to get folded in to those negotiations about working conditions uh, in the same way that negotiations over break times or over the pace of work or all that kind of stuff. Uh, so so I, I, I see that it's pretty inevitable at this point. You know, it's it's sort of the putting the toothpaste back in the tube problem, right, that, that we've done this. It's now a big part of the of the work of workplace life for many Canadians. And that means that it's going to have to be a subject for negotiation. Yeah, and I guess one of those topics in that discussion, too, has to be, okay, who actually even qualifies for this? Because as you say, in many of these corporations, as there is in the civil service, you can't just say this is the policy. It applies to everybody because it doesn't. There's some people that simply can't work remotely. Uh, and you got to wonder how those negotiations are going to do. And, and it's just we mentioned just before you hopped on with us, Professor, there's a lot of public sector unions that will be up for contracts uh, this year, both provincially and federally. So it's going to be fascinating yes. to see how this rolls out. Uh, great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Happy to be here, Bill. Thanks again. Take care. That's uh, Professor Barry Eidlin uh, from the Department of Sociology at McGill University. And uh, we're going to track that story and just see how it is going to impact uh, negotiations, both in the private and in the public sector. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I can't wait to get on the road again. Willie Nelson, uh, inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
And uh, it's surprising to some people, but maybe not. If you look at uh, the recent history anyway, don't forget Dolly Parton was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, in the last round. And so it's, uh, it's maybe a pattern who's developing. Well, to talk about that and, and some of the other inductees, and it's quite an illustrious uh, list here, too. A good welcome back to the program, Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. Uh, and always a welcome guest on this program. Eric, thanks for joining us. Good to have you with us again. No problem. I'm glad I'm just, I think I'm just sobering up from all the, the, the dope that was smoked at Willie Nelson's show. <laughs> Even though that it was 2,500 miles away, I think the trees are just getting back to normal here in Toronto and Hamilton. Well, yeah, I mean, when Willie throws a party, he throws a party, and he, he makes no bones about it, about what the refreshments and, and, and some of the other things that you can imbibe in there, too. Uh, but that's Willie, and, and, and he's just, uh, first of all, the fact that he's 90 years old, he's, uh, you know, lived a, a pretty interesting life over that time and had his ups and downs, uh, but inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, his body of work is, is unquestionably brilliant. Uh but it was a, a kind of an eyebrow raiser. But I think what we're noticing, Eric, and I think you mentioned this last year when you joined us uh, to talk about the, the that that latest group of inductees. It looks as if this this whole organization is trying to expand their boundaries right now. It's still called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they're looking at music in general, pop music in general, pretty much now, aren't they? Yeah, and they they seem to be just you know. I I, I think the problem was is that most people when they think of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they just think rock. But rock is not only just a part of rock and roll, but rock and roll was never one sound. It, it was never just rock and roll. It's R&B, it's gospel, it's country. It's all where it comes from. Um, rock and roll in the beginning was a mixture of gospel and R&B with country music. And so um, when you have the opportunity, like the voters do for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and trace it back from the beginnings of it to the present day, that's where you end up with hip-hop. That's where you end up with R&B and music that's, that's moving the culture. Um, you know, in the first year of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, six of the performers out of the ten were African-American. They were black. And the following year, Hank Williams got in, and Johnny Cash got in in 1992, then Brenda Lee in 2002. So... All the roads lead back to 1955 of the origins of the beginning of rock and roll, but they have to honor the people who kind of created music that helped shape rock and roll sound. And so that's where you end up with Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson and Missy Elliott, and I'm completely fine with that. Well, sure. And, and as you mentioned, with a number of these other inductees, uh, you know, the, these were people that had top 40 hits. I mean, and depending on who you ask and, and what their, their bent in music is, uh, the Everly Brothers are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, they, yeah. they grew up as a, they were a country act. I mean, their mom and dad had a radio station down in Tennessee or someplace like that. And, and they started entertaining when they were eight or nine years old. Uh, but they morphed into obviously into top 40, as did Johnny Cash. So this is this is really no surprise, and and Willie's had more than his share of hits on the Easy Listing chart, on the Top Forty charts. I mean, we just played a segment of On the Road again. That that was a monster hit for him, wasn't it? Yeah, and especially when you know when when you you, you kind of touched on it was you know you it helps if you have all of those hits. It, it helps if you have ninety albums like Willie Nelson has. It helps if if you've had number one songs. But I think more importantly, it helps if you've made money for the people that vote because it is political. Everything is politics. Um, and so when people sometimes complain, especially on social media, that there's a number of. of 70s artists that will have to wait a long time. Artists like Foreigner or Styx or Kansas or REO Speedwagon. They sold 
you know, tens of, of millions of albums. Um, but there's just nobody fighting for them. There's nobody that they have in their stable that that is working the voting process and and the people that kind of have that final decision. Um, Cheryl Crow is uh, has been popular and a great standing citizen for music um, since she started. She does a lot of benefit concerts. She does a lot of, of, of organization work. She's Grammy nominated. She's a woman. So there is a lot of check marks and boxes that, that she that she clicks on. Um, you know, I, I I was absolutely wrong when it came to my predictions. I, I think when you and I we were talking when the when this thing came out, but I thought for sure the White Stripes would have gotten in yeah. because Jack White it seems to be omnipresent everywhere you go, um, and a, and a huge champion for rock and roll. But um, but he was left off of the induction this year. But um, you know, it's certainly the most probably one of the most diverse I've seen, where somebody like Kate Bush can get in with Missy Elliott and getting in with George Michael and Willie Nelson and Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to talk about Missy Elliott because uh, one of the, if you go onto the website, you know, what are the criteria for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? One of the elements there, and there's always going to be a debate about this, was uh, did they alter that music? Did they enhance or did they move that music to the next level? And this is a pretty strong argument that that's what Missy Elliott did for hip-hop, isn't there? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Missy Elliott not only just busted down that door um, for for women and rappers to to kind of be really, really popular on there, um, but she got in on the first ballot, just like Eminem got in on the first ballot last year, and Jay Z on the on the year before. So, if there's a line that we're seeing right now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it shows that the power of hip hop culture right now as if people didn't already realize it, about how far these artists are being recognized on the first ballot. Um, what the voters of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are trying to do is bring in other people who qualify, who are in their 20s and their 30s, and they might not have 40 years worth of music journalism or record industry experience behind them, but they're certainly no less credible to talk about and explain and understand and fight for the artists that they want to see in there as changing not just their own culture, but when you have rappers on the Super Bowl and it becomes one of the top five most watched um, Super Bowls of all time, it's not just a bunch of 12-year-olds that are watching. It's 50-year-olds because now that hip-hop is now you know, officially 50 years old this year. Um, I've always had hip hop in my life. Like there was always around it, mm -hmm. watching much music and watching Maestro Fresh West and Public Enemy and all and Cardi and all of these artists. So it, it's just about time that I think we kind of maybe just drop the argument a little bit that that hip hop music culture just doesn't deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's another element to this too. I wanted to get your your, your thoughts on. Uh, you, you may look at somebody. You mentioned Kate Bush a minute ago. Uh, great artist, outstanding artist. And, but you figure, well, you know, that was a while ago. But a lot of these artists are, are rejuvenating their careers right now because the music's being played well on Netflix and, and other you know streaming services right now. It's background to a movie or a, a TV show mm -hmm. or something. But but that that's what happened with Kate Bush, of course. You know, her song uh, "Running Up the Hill" uh, was used uh, in Strange Things, the the show that's on Netflix. So a whole different audience a whole different generation were exposed to that music and that, that that's kind of like you know putting wind beneath the wings of the career when that happens isn't it that's exactly it. It, it it's having that song being played on stranger things to shine a light on somebody like kate bush where if you were if you were born in the uk you would know just how a, a, an astonishing 
power of influence that she has over over singer songwriters and women artists um, for the last forty years. I mean, um, she was the first woman to ever have a number one song on the UK charts that she not only wrote by herself but also produced by herself as well. Um, so she was a huge influence on on people that came after her. Um, and it's also for a lot of the, those younger people who didn't know who she was back in 1985. Um, they were they were probably not even born yet. So the the ability to have these songs in television shows and movies to a brand new audience, I think if Kate Bush doesn't have that song in Stranger Things, she probably doesn't get in. But because of the success of that song, it only proves that she deserves to get in because of her influence and because of the amazing music that she's been able to produce, even when she hasn't even produced anything in over 15 years. Uh Spinners in there, and and you know people may say, well, they were they were just a seventies R and B. So, but they're they're a great example, as so many others were. Uh, that that's a group that actually started in the nineteen fifties, and and they fought, you know, they played the dives and the small halls and everything else until they they finally made it in a big way back in the early nineteen seventies, uh, and and a pretty decent body of work that they've developed over the years too. Yeah, you know, the Spinners finally gets in after the fourth time being on the ballot of the, of the nominees. And so, you know, when you take a look at that vocal group for for the longest time, I mean, they started right in the middle of the 1950s, and they had hit singles going up until the mid-1970s. And they're still going. You know, there's one original member by the name of Henry Famborough, but he's, they also play Florida and, and down south and Los Angeles, and, and they're on PBS every now and again and uh, they're certainly you know look they certainly have all those songs I mean from everything from that's what girls are made for all the way you know all the way down to like it's a shame and then came you with Dion Warwick and working my way back to you was a huge hit and that was in like the yeah. late 1970s it's like 30 years after the group started um, so you know they're, they, they definitely have the ability to still continue to get played on classic and oldies stations. And that's probably one where I don't think anybody under the age of 40 might have voted for them, but I think that's where maybe people in their 50s and 60s and 70s said, you know, if we're going to include somebody from our generation, we probably could do no wrong in inducting the spinners. Uh, very quickly, we've got a little bit of time left. I want to talk yeah. about George Michael. Because uh, yeah. one of the things we focused on, of course, was that the fan vote. You know, well, those are the real fans. They're, they're the ones with the voice. And he, he won the fan vote this year. Uh, left us way too soon. Uh, a, a very, very talented, gifted individual. Uh, and crowded an awful lot of work and a lot of, a lot of genius into, into his career in a short period of time. Um, I, I I think I could probably talk about George Michael for about four and a half straight days without mentioning the same thing <laughs> twice. I I adore him. Um, I, I, two Grammy awards, three Brit awards, um, massive amount of record sales. Um, was one of the very first pop artists ever to come out of the closet and and proclaim about his sexuality. Um, worked with Aretha Franklin, donated an absolutely ton of money um, in private and public to charities. One of the first people to talk about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s when nobody else um, was even, you know, afraid to. Um, he absolutely deserves to get in. And again, going back to what I was saying, he made a lot of money for the music industry, and those people are still having, uh, having an, uh, an influence and an impact today. Yeah, it just an, an incredible and career. And I mean, this keeps going up on the Billboard charts every single year, you know, uh, as it there, should. So there you go. 
as it should uh, a fabulous song and and again to rejuvenate the career like that and uh, you always wonder I mean you know with with Andrew Ridgely and Wham and and uh, that's an album that everybody owned back in the 1980s but uh, but he was an, a classic example of, of an artist as you say that progressed I mean the, the you know the 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 pop music like in wake me up before you go go etc but uh, things like kissing a fool and praying for time and, and and some incredible songs like this this is a guy who really evolved oh that that album listen without prejudice volume one the one that has praying for time on it and and freedom is, is just an unbelievable album um it, it turned into one of our our era's greatest singer songwriters and i know people out there might be thinking like what like wake me up before you go go it's like yes because it's a perfect pop song, and then you have Careless yeah. Whisper, then you have Freedom, and, um, you know, Jesus to a Child, and, you know, the cover of Papa with the Rolling Stone was even more funkier and fast love, and so many songs that, that he that he wrote, and, and uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, I mean, there, the, the documentary on him is well worth a watch, too, just to see about the power and influence that he had. Well, I mean, you know, I, I still remember one of my favorite songs, of course, is, is Queen and Crazy Little Thing Called Love, but George Michael's answer to that was Faith. Uh, just a, a, a tight little, you know, two and a half minute song. Just it just action packed and, and yeah. that that just shows you the genius. Have you have you seen him do um somebody to love? Um with Queen backing him b- in the no Freddie Mercury. Okay. Uh, you need to go check it out. It's the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. And he okay. did 39, These Are the Days of Our Lives, and Somebody yeah. to Love at the final. And it was hailed as one of the greatest performances ever in England. Go check it out on YouTube. It, you, will, you will cry. And then you I'll will be, be so happy to know that you did this segment today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be on YouTube this afternoon then. I know what I'm looking for. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Thanks so much for having me, man. We'll talk soon. You betcha. Eric Alper, our music publicist and commentator uh, with the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.